previously on Storyological. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't, really don't remember. I can't remember what his name is. God bless sentences. I just love them. They do a lot of the work for you. Yeah. Do you want to do the frog face? He's <laughs> so weird. That's the line you end on and you go into the show. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Readers, welcome to a whole brand new season of Storyological. All Did, new. All, all new. new. Totally new. No rewinds, repeats, rehashes. Reupholstering. Definitely zero of that. No, no. Um, yeah, we didn't abandon you. We came back for more of the same and also more different. Yeah, more of the same, more different, secret, special, you know. I mean, we're withholding all the good stuff from you. It's so true, So we hope yeah. that'll keep you in tow. Keep you in tow? <laughs> keep you excited. Yeah, excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of abusive relationships. <laughs> oh, segue. My pick for this week is Seasons of Glass and Iron by Amal Elmotar. You may remember we spoke about one of Amal's stories last season, and we we kind of made a semi-rule for ourselves not to pick the same writer twice in the same season. But All of our rules are semi-rules. Right, I mean, there's no such thing as a hard and fast rule for this stuff. No, no. Um, so when I read this scale? before Christmas, yeah. I yeah. was like, oh, I can get it in there. I can be the first to pick one of Amal's stories this, this season. <laughs> According to our semi-rule, the only one to pick one of a mouse story. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is, I found it in the Starlet Wood collection. Wait, Starwood? Starlet Wood. Oh, Starlet Wood. Yeah. Okay. Starwood is Which the name I'm of Which I'm now a... thinking could easily be a Chuck Tingle book, but it's not. It's an amazing collection put out, ama- amazing anthology put out by Saga Press. I just got that. <laughs> got it. Yeah. And then also... Uncanny published uh, this story. So even if you don't get the collect- the anthology, which you should, but if you don't, yeah. you can read it at Un- Uncanny's We have already website. now, at this very moment, discussed two of the stories from that collection. I know. It's yeah. totally on my all my nomination lists this year. I mean, not all of the prizes have an anthology slot. That's true. Re- related work? No, well, I think there's, there's definitely one in, Hard I don't know. Hardbound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never really thought about hardbound. It's a, that's a good word, readers. That's a good word. This comes in hardbound or loose leaf. <laughs> oh, readers, you can't see, but I'm actually straining my eyes, rolling them so hard. So the story is a tale of two women. Two women stuck living fairy, fairy tale punishments. One is uh, in isolation on the top of a glass hill. Theoretically, to protect all of the princes and the neighbouring kingdoms from destroying each other should one actually manage to marry her. And the other is trying to wear her way through seven pairs of iron shoes, um, which she is trying to do as punishment for breaking a promise to her husband, who is half man, half bear. But the beauty of this story is these two women come together to heal each other and run away together. You remember how the other day we were talking about about that thing we often talk about, about how a lot of stories described as literary stories tend to have more loose resolutions, perhaps less of a, of a, of a clear bullet of satisfaction directed at your heart, and that genre stories, sci-fi, fantasy, romance, sometimes seem to have a clearer aim at some satisfaction, either because it's a satisfying resolution or because it's aimed at a specific emotion that it wants to create in you, and that emotionist tends not to be 
confusion. <laughs> it's a thing I love is, is a literary story, but that has the language and the tropes of sci-fi yanked into it. Mm-hmm. So I get a, a wonderful rush of those two things. And when this, the, the story that Amal wrote here, it felt like it was doing something similar, but it's not like it's crushing in uh, a literary style with a fairy tale style per se. It felt more like it was bringing in the fairy tale language and tropes, but then bringing in two other things. One was a kind of uh, a feminist allegory with romance. Mm. Like it's aimed towards a happy ending that you're that has a bit of a bump in the middle, which is which we'll talk about. I love that bump in the middle. But you get to the point where they're going to go off together and be happy. And I love that in that collision, and this thing happened where you're, you're right, like fairy tale punishments. Most of the fairy tales we read, Cinderella, the Frog Prince, somehow the romance itself is full of pain. Like the, the, the pursuit of romance is one that is a, a fraught, painful process. Whereas in this one... The romance itself is about letting go of the pain mm. that has accumulated in your past. The romance is not about accumulating more pain. I think the feminist angle of this story is what keeps me reading and rereading it. So obviously, sentence to sentence, it's very beautiful and lyrical and easy to to feel engaged in the characters and what they're doing. But when you realize that the the paths of these two women are going to cross and the punishments that they're living are going to, in some way, they are so different and yet so similar that they will be able to open each other's eyes to the way that they have absorbed the terrible messages, the, the blaming and the shaming from the men in their lives. And these two women will be able to help each other see how ridiculous that is and break free of it. And I thought, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything that so directly and so elegantly explains what it is to have a, to grow up in a, either a racist or a sexist culture and to absorb that culture into yourself and to accept blame for something that really isn't your fault. Yeah, it is. It is all about what it is speaking to that I love. In some ways, that the language that you describe as lyrical is lyrical, but the the. For me, I don't find as much satisfaction in this story as in pockets with with the language. The what 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 pulls me in is is the the clarity of these ideas, and yet ideas delivered so clearly in these images of these two women that have imprisoned themselves, have burdened themselves with punishment and pain, can be seen through more than one lens. Like it, it feels so rich inside of its clarity and you see the feminist angle in the fact that both of these women are are carrying with them a limitation a a a confinement of themselves to a punishment that has both been given to them by men but also accepted by them Mm -hmm. chosen by them because they desire the love from that other person and it reminded me of a lot of kind of Freudian discussions, which is, you know, often often scattered about discussions of fairy tales, um, about how the way we are wounded as children, the, the, the moments that we are wounded, the, those wounds that we tend to carry with us are the ones that we built up as a way to both survive the, the, the pain mm-hmm. of loving someone, mm-hmm but also to earn the love of that person that is giving us pain. And it tends to be really hard to let those 
kind of cages go because we built them to catch love, but we just ended up imprisoning ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. She she manages to do it at the at the meta level, but also at the micro level. So things like uh, when Tabitha makes it to the top of the hill and Amira asks her what she's doing there and she kind of goes, oh, I, I, I don't know, I just sort of came here, I'm passing through, came here by accident really. Whether this deliberately or not, it made it reminded me of the way that ambition and intent is so often squashed in women and you know it is not it is not rewarded to to sort of set your sights on a goal and then go out and achieve it and so many successful women I hear talking about how they got there and they talk about how lucky they are or they talk about how fortunate they've been not that they knuckle down and work their butts off to get where they are and so just having this tiny little exchange that reflected what I kind of see how women talk about what they want to do or what they are doing. Uh, I found it just so smart. What I loved about that is that they're they're different. I mean, Tabitha, who has these ridiculous shoes that she's going through, mm-hmm. seems entirely a person that believes that they're putting forth good work. Like they are striving to get somewhere. It's just the place they're striving is to get to the the love that they want rather than to be queen or something. And that's like what you were saying, how they're different enough to rub against each other. Mm. And the way that, that romance is often about trying to create a whole person out of yourself with someone else. These these two women complement each other. One is literally locked in a glass cage, separate from life. The other is walking across the entire world. One is making an art of stillness. And the other one is moving forwards in the hopes of going back to where they came from. Mm. It made me wonder, in my wonder brain, if it was a different story, how it would look, you know, two years from now, if, you know, the ways they complemented each other, how they might have needed to navigate being reinflicted by those wounds. Being... Oh, do you mean, like, what are they doing two years after they run away from the hill? Um, or do no, you mean, I mean two not, years not in so our much lives? specifically, just that um, one way of looking at romance is we tend to to find someone that feels like they complete us. Mm. But in fact, one of the ways they complete us is that they they share a lot of similar pain and struggle. Mm-hmm. And that over time, there is that, that pain and struggle doesn't go away. And there's a wonderful, complicated moment in the story where Glass Lady, uh, Amira, mm-hmm. tells Tabitha, the only way I'm going to marry you is if you leave those shoes behind, if you leave that aspect, if you leave that pain, if you leave that definition of yourself behind. And in the story, that happens and they go off. And in my imagination, I wonder what happens when maybe it's not so easy for Tabitha to really just leave that pain behind. I understand that in the story, metaphorically... They're they're both leaving their pain, right? They're leaving the glass hill and the iron slippers. Yes, yes. So what I'm saying about Tabitha is the same from here. I wonder if both of them, it will be so easy to leave that pain, that vision of themselves behind. Yeah, they will probably end up exacting the same pain on each other in some way or or trying to extract it from each other that yeah, is yeah, that it, is the damage that abuse can do and ultimately that wonder is a, is it that is a is a different story that's why this story ends here right i mean that's that can yeah. be a different story and a different struggle and i did abusive like, ever after it's just not got the same ring to it just because they face that conflict in the future doesn't mean it's an inevitable loss it would just be a different a different hill to climb, a different <laughs> glass cage to escape. Um, I really love that there there was a bit of that Amal 
walked us up to that conflict where they were going to see each other's pain in a way where it was both you're crazy for thinking that you deserved it, uh, but also those people were horrible to you. I part of my, I'm I'm in this two minds when thinking about it. Partly, I think it's so perfectly judged, so perfectly balanced. I I bet it was really hard to come up with. And then the other part of me is like, nope. Those things are around us everywhere and I bet she had a million examples to draw on from her own life and the lives of her friends to construct that kind of paradox of of the punishment and the accepting of the punishment. So yeah, I kind of feel like maybe sadly it was way too easy as well. My pick for this week is What is Lost by Su Yi Lin, which was in Inner Fictions in spring of 2014. And in a kind of mirror image to the story we just talked about, which was a story about letting go of the pain of your past and moving forward in, in a loving relationship. This story is in the, the category of story, I would say, is like a eulogy. I, I often think that like every story is an attempt to bring the dead to life. And some stories more than others feel literally like somebody is standing in front of a, a church giving a eulogy to their, in this case, dead country. The first line of the story is, I was 10 years old the last time I traveled to China. I got God bless sentences. I just love them. They do a lot of the work for you. You've got, you've got a person, I. You've got the, the time, uh, 10 years old. You've got the verb, traveled to China. And the fact that it was their last time, it already is like, all right, well, I guess, I guess we're not going back there. I'm going to pay a little more attention to what you tell me now. And that is the, the simple structure of the story. It is a recounting of, of the narrator's time in China. So we get what is in a sense is just um, a series of moments incredibly clearly described with beautiful image after beautiful image, particularly uh, delicious ice cream. There's a lot of ice cream in this story. I liked how in giving us a sense of what this narrator had lost, each section of the story was introduced by a little bit of Chinese myth, a little bit of, of language, of, of words, of images from an older China that has itself been lost. For me, those bits got in the way. I didn't take to them at all. But the descriptions of China, I was just eyes glazed in love with. Uh, she really manages to paint the image of where this young girl or where she went when she was a young girl so carefully so elegantly she doesn't spend time trying to tell us what to feel or what to think she just spends time describing what happened and how she felt and she gets the child's perspective so beautifully though and the way a child has very urgent, very immediate feelings that they haven't yet learned to deny in themselves. Like the envy of the teddy bear, the jealousy that she feels, the fear of the hippopotamus and how she imagines like the hippo could eat a whole man and so she clings to her grandfather. And that is something that uh, could feel very brittle and and difficult to engage with, I think, in another writer's hands. But but she manages to do it in such a way that really draws us in. 
Yeah, yeah. It felt delicate and incredibly strong to me. I had this sense the power that she had evoked was each image felt like a leaf on a tree, like、mm-hmm. in the autumn, where some of the beauty of that leaf is this, the sure knowledge that winter is coming and it's going to blow away. And one of the things I loved is in the litanies of those, of those details are things. That were gloriously surprising. I'm talking about the importance of Celine Dion. One of the, <laughs> the, the second line of the story is about how Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On was a top 40 hit, and the narrator's cousin <clears throat> carried the cassette with them throughout the trip. And things like that came up.、Um, I love that because, you know, you, you said the, 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 the myth bits just got in the way to you. But to me, having those, those myth bits in helped. Engage with the idea of history and nostalgia about how th- those myths speak to some older form of China that somehow feels scrubbed clean of detail. They're, they're evoking some history of, I don't even know what to say. I mean, that's what myth is, is that there's a kind of scrubbed clean of detail, timeless thing. And I loved. Having, like, you know, because that is the face of China to a lot of people, to an idea of this is what China is. And I loved having that there in counterpoint to what is not scrubbed clean at all in, in her prose and in her memory. And, and so it felt more like, to me, because in the way that that China is lost to time, reinforced the idea that. This story's conflict is in part is, is that age old conflict with time that you are, it's like an act of resistance to recall, to bring to life, to bring back, not just a sense of where you've been, but those specific moments trying to, to hold on to those details that often get lost in the way that we mythologize our childhood, the way nostalgia itself can turn our childhood into a myth rather than the stuff of this story. Yeah, and she talks about that at the end of the story. She says how she kept a diary.、Uh, her mum asked her to keep a diary, and she did, but it's, it, she describes it as being devoid of emotion. And I think、uh, even if the, the kid's diary in the story was devoid of emotion, this story is not. It's in all the lists of things that she does, it's warm and embracing. And, and part, of the, part of that warmth comes from. Um, a, yes, the kind of nostalgia that you're talking about, the sense that it's a story that takes place in time, but in a, in, a, in a timeline that persists. So she talks about things that come later, like looking after her grandma when she's sick, like being given the flared straw hat that she covets.、Uh, these all don't take place during that trip that she's describing. And then the other thing that, that gives it the warmth is the people that she talks about, right? She sees China. Not as a tourist sees it, but she sees it through the eyes of her family, through the grandparents that she lives with in the courtyard that they share with the neighbors, through the grandpa that they visit who cannot speak anything but Mandarin, which the young girl doesn't speak, the cousin who comes to fetch her, that, you know, all of these different people that she spends time with. It's their warmth and their generosity to her that. Really fills this story out like a, like a wind in a sail. Part of the, the poignancy of the story is that,、uh, that in referencing that, the, that she kept a diary as a kid, but when she looked back at it, it was devoid of emotion, captures that sense that while you were talking about the immediacy of the emotion that a child may experience, often when you go back and look at diaries, there isn't. You know, for me, when I look at what I wrote as a kid, there wasn't much sophisticated expression of what those motions were. You don't have either the vocabulary or the 
ability to necessarily pick one out from another. Right. Yeah. And I don't know that you always you necessarily have the ability to to put it in context of the people around you or history. And so it feels like the story in some ways is a gift to her as a child in the same way that、mm. those emotionless diaries, I mean, as devoid as, as emotion as those diaries might have been, they were a gift from the child to the woman now. And the, the magic of the story is being able to connect those things, being able to recall these details and imbue them with life and emotion. When we reach the end of the story, there's a gesture to the fact that something has disaster has happened to China, and and she, the narrator, has come back to the U.S. and now lives in a place where people look at them and see the disaster, and、mm. then the narrator has begun to feel like they have to suppress where they came from because the people just see them as a reminder of some horror that has happened, and so, and that way too, I've often heard people speak about remembering. Uh, about telling the stories of where you came from, as is itself a kind of rebellion, and I love the the force、mm. that that gives to this story, that ending. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's like the it's trying to convey, I think, and successfully does convey the the pain and the conflict in being an immigrant, that you come to a new land because it is well in this story it is safe, right? China, all China is gone, destroyed, but you carry. It with you in your skin and your face, and that's what everybody in the new country sees in you. And in this story, what they see is pain and disease. And oh my God, what have they? What has this person got on them that I might accidentally catch? And yeah, and then you, the crushing of that identity is literalized in the way that everything stamped "Made in China" is destroyed in、yeah. this society. And I, oh, when I read that, I just. Oh, I felt it so strongly as what it represented to that person and yeah, their identity. Yeah,、uh, and it and in giving us the story, she gives us everything that is inside of that skin, everything about what China is. You know what the story reminded me of? Pet milk. Uh, <laughs> That's now、no. my go-to for anything nostalgic. What? No, I mean I used the word nostalgia, but was in a sense of of something that I felt like in in a lot of ways the story. Wasn't because to me, at least the negative the the negative connotation of nostalgia is sentimentality about、mm-hmm. infusing a kind of sentiment into a memory that erases reality the the specifics of the reality yeah it erases the reality and and that's not here what the the story reminded me of was where the narrator says the things that I carry which called back to me there's a, a story by Tim O'Brien called the things they carried which is about soldiers in Vietnam and the physical stuff that they carried with them and then giving us the the list of the things that those soldiers carried conjures them to because we know they all died、uh, and I love that that little bit of whether or not I took it to be a deliberate reference and and I love that little seeping of another story about loss coming into it and it reminded me. Of one part of the narrative in Station Eleven, where you capture that sense of of the world before the apocalypse. Thanks for listening, readers. We hope you've had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? Who can say? We don't. We don't remember how to do this. We probably haven't talked about all of the stories that. You found over the Christmas break. Nor did we say all of the things one could probably say about the two stories that we did talk about. So, if you'd like to let us know your thoughts, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. And how do you spell Storylogical? Just like it sounds, <laughs> <laughs> which is story, like the word O 
like oxygen. No, like the letter. And logical. Like, is it Aristotle? Like Aristotle. You can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols. And you can follow her on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. You can find and like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. That's storylogical spelled the way that we spelled it a few seconds ago. Uh-huh. Um, and for everything else, for links, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, you can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. No, it's a bit like Pittsburgh. I mean, you just see it <laughs> and you think it should be pronounced a you certain way. You said you weren't going to bring that up. Oh, I mean, for the podcast? Oh, you mean you didn't deliberately, what you were saying, don't bring it up for the podcast? <laughs> Just meant in general. Oh, well, for the podcast, that's not in general. <laughs> okay. That's with our close personal friend. Readers, it's very hard for me to look at the word Pittsburgh and pronounce it Pittsburgh because, oh, my brain wants to read it like Edinburgh. Yeah, which- much like at the King's Cross station where, I don't know, for the first time in my life, I saw Edinburgh spelled, I don't know. Uh, Emma kept telling me that train goes to Edinburgh and I kept looking at all the signs and I was like, (laughs) I can't see the Edinburgh train. I mean, there's the Edinburgh train. And then I was like, Emma, are you saying that word there? That's what Edinburgh looks like. Oh, oh man. I mean, to be fair, readers, I've read a lot of books, but it's amazing the things you just don't pick up in books or TV until you actually know what they're referring to. So really, that's a message to all you kids. Go out there and have sex, and then you'll know what the books are about. (laughs) I thought you were going to say read the book and watch the TV show. (laughs) No. No, No, read the book and live your damn life. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Three and two and three, two, one.